Welcome to Heart to Heart with Michael, featuring your host, Michael Lieben. Our program is designed to empower the bereaved community with information and stories from those who have suffered the most terrible loss. Michael himself, a bereaved father, will be meeting with people from around the world to share and to draw hope from their experiences. And now, here is Michael Lieben. Welcome to the 12th episode of the first season of Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose is to empower our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. Today's show is how to be supportive of someone who has lost a child. And here with us to discuss this topic is Christine Bright McCormick. Christine is mom to Cora, who passed away at five days old of an undetected congenital heart defect. Since Cora's death, Christine has advocated for newborn heart defect screening and written about her grief journey in blogs. Cora's story has been shared in a variety of platforms, from federal advisory committees to popular parenting sites. She wrote the e-booklet, When Your Friend's Baby Dies, as a resource for friends and family supporting a parent after the loss of a baby. She lives in Indiana with her husband and three dogs. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about Cora and why you decided to write a book to help others after your loss. Cora, um, she was perfect. <laughs> it, you of know, course. she lived for five days, so mm-hmm. I think you just have to start there. You know, she'll, she'll always be remembered as this perfect little little baby. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I'll start kind of with my pregnancy because that's more where her story starts. Found out I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Everything went great. Ultrasound was fine. Um, she was born. She was almost just shy of nine pounds and just looked healthy as can be. Um, no problems. Nothing came up. We took her home. And the third day we had her home when she was five going on six days old, she died suddenly when I was feeding her, you know, rushed her to the hospital. No, no warning. Nothing. No, nothing. I mean, I just looked down and, um, my baby was covered in, in blood, um, and wasn't breathing and was gray and limp. So I shouted, And my husband to call the ambulance, and we just we lived in a small town about oh two miles from the hospital, probably not even. So we just hopped in the car. It was winter, so my husband actually drove with his head out the window because of the windows were all frosted over, and just sped to the hospital. Um, and we had no idea at this point. You know, he was up with me, and so he saw like what you know what had happened, and then um, she didn't make it. And uh, a few days later, the coroner called us with the preliminary results that she had something called a congenital heart defect. And even though I'm an educated person, I'd never heard of that. But I just opened the dictionary and was like, well, congenital born with. So she had a heart defect she was, you know, born with and tried to piece it together from there. We got the final autopsy a little bit later. Um, and by that time, we'd connected with some other people in this congenital heart defect world and learned a little bit more. Um, and I kind of just dove in, too, because I was just so blindsided. And I think anybody who gets that diagnosis that sometimes has some form of being blindsided, it wasn't unique. It was just different for me and, and our experience and our story. I can tell you that, for, I think as far as I know from everybody else in the congenital heart defect world, the first thing we did was we hit the books. Um, by the time my daughter was born, it was Google, was in its infancy. But everybody hit Google or the books, did exactly the same thing you did. And we were all sort of right. thrust into this whole new planet that we had no idea anything about. Right. And even after your um, child dies, you still want to parent them. I mean, me knowing about CHD did nothing for at that point, but I might have done something for another baby, another family. And that was the only way that mm-hmm. I really could still parent her and be a parent and be connected to her. 
Um, and that was kind of where a lot of my advocacy journey started. Tell me a little bit about the, the nature of the book, how you wrote it and who it's for. It. How did you distribute it? It was a smaller project of mine, but it found it's really found been found helpful by certain groups of people. Um, I just found I felt unsupported. And again, going back to just wanting to help other people with what I learned um, and being a writer, I just really pounded it out pretty fast. I was staying with my husband's grandma and there was in Florida and just all alone and just had time to just write. And I wanted to finish a project in that time. So I decided just a short e-booklet format was the best because when somebody's lost a child, a lot of times you need inf- information fast and quick and you don't have time to read a, you know, a novel. So I just wanted something that they could um, digest quickly and after I wrote it, I put it on Amazon, and um, as, as much as I can, I put it on for free because it definitely wasn't a get-rich-quick uh, scheme to write the book, and that's a great, great way to spread the word and to get it out there more. And then I've given people in different um, support groups permission to print it out as a whole. Um, I don't mind. They'll, you know, you can email me for the PDF version because uh, it's a little easier to do it that way. So right now it's available on Kindle. It's not a real hard copy in any format. It's just uh, like an e-copy, like, but you could print it off on PDF. As a guest on Heart to Heart with Anna, you talked about working with a senator to help pass Cora's Law. What is Cora's Law for those of us who really don't know? And what was it like working with a lawmaker to help other families like your own? Right. So a few months after Cora passed away, or maybe even within weeks, I because your first question is, well, what could have prevented this? I mean, this had to have right. been preventable the same some way. I learned about a really simple screening uh, called pulse oximetry screening, which most mm. of your listeners, if you're in the CHD community, you're going to know what those are all about. At the time, the advocacy for that type of screening was kind of in its infancy, but there were a lot of people doing a lot of really great work, um, and it was really ramping up. And I connected with some of those other parents in other states um, and doctors and advocates who were on this journey. And it had gone uh, in front of a federal advisory committee for inclusion in the newborn screening uh, panel. And it hadn't been approved yet, but we had lots of, we had a good amount of data about this. So I wrote one of the researchers in England and really got into the nuts and the bolts to make sure that this was something that was working, and it was. I mean, of course, as we all know now, it doesn't find every CHD, but it's kind of, I always think of screening and detection as like a prong. You know, there's um, pulse oximetry screening, there's less signs and symptoms, there's, of course, ultrasound, um, and and then uh, nurses um, at the bedside, you know, doing some of the listening to the heart and things like that. So I... I out this this could close a gap an important diagnostic gap of babies like possibly like Cora you know going back you'll never know for sure that it could have found her CHD we can't uh, go back in time and know that for sure so taking all that data I first wrote to my state senator and it was a long really a long letter and then all of the data attached that hey I think we need to do this and the only way hospitals are going to start doing it and Indiana is going to be on the forefront is if we pass it into law, which, um, you know, it's just one of the advocacy routes that you can take, but it just felt like the right thing to do at that time. No state had a law. I felt like somebody had to lead the way. And at the same time, there were advocates working in other states so that the year 
Indiana passed their law, Indiana, uh, New Jersey passed their law, and it actually went into effect first. So they started screening first. I want to be clear on this. What what kind of screening are they doing? Because after my daughter was born, they said, if you have more children, we'll screen more. In other words, until you have a child with a CHD, they don't screen because they say it's expensive and there's no real reason to. And in fact, with the regular screening, with the regular uh, checkups that she had, they saw the heart, they heard the heart. But it wasn't a cardiologist who was doing it. It was an OBGYN. And he saw four chambers in beating and said, Mazel tov, everything's fine. Pulse oximetry screening is done at the bedside in the hospital around 24 hours of birth on the newborn. Um, and it costs just a few dollars. It's not expensive. And just a few minutes of the nurse's time. And they take, uh, they put the pulse ox on. The, and it's, it's been a while because that's the other thing. I've kind of stepped back from advocacy. They put it on a foot and a hand and that because the difference between the two can mean something. And then, of course, you know, if it's under like 95, hey, that's a red flag. If it's like under like 93, it's like, whoa, red flag. And then that. I mean, it's a screening, so it doesn't tell you anything. That doesn't tell you your child has a CHD. That's like no screening really tells you you've got anything. It, it then you you'd want more tests. Um, I want I want to cut in here also because in the case of my daughter, she had too much blood running uh, through the pulmonary artery into her lungs, and she was actually a hundred, and right. they and they wanted to get her down um, before they would do anything later, but they already discovered her CHD through other means. So if she had done only this test, they would have passed her. And that's why we call it a screening, because it's just one of the prongs that I talked about earlier. And in fact, it uh, has seven main targets, so seven types. So it sounds like your daughter. CHD wasn't one of the, the targets. It doesn't um, find everyone. It depends on the mechanism of the heart and the defect. But it's it closes like that diagnostic gap like I talked about. That brings up another point, because I don't want any parent to think, oh, my baby got this this screening. She's good. She turns blue a little bit. I'm not going to even think about her heart. No, 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 no. Like the signs okay. and the symptoms need to be reported. I'm sorry, but we're going to have to take a hard break here. Okay. Uh, but when we get back, we'll be talking more about how friends can help their bereaved friends during the holidays. Hi, I'm John Montez of NBC's hit acapella show, The Sing Off. In acapella music, it takes a team to create a sound that many will enjoy, just like it'll take a team to help my good friend Miles Schweitzer, an HLHS survivor. Let's help Miles fulfill his dream and make a big enough sound to bring awareness to congenital heart disease. Please visit him at GoFundMe.com backwards slash The Miles Project. Miles with the Y. Again, that's GoFundMe.com The Miles Project. This is for Miles. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Today we're talking with Christine McCormick about how to help a friend after his or her baby has died. Before the break, we were talking about Cora's Law and how you've written a book to help others who have lost a child. Let's start the segment by talking about what the holidays are like for you. The holidays can be really up and down for me. Some years I am all about it. Let's join in. Let's put up the Christmas tree. And some years I just kind of skip it. But my one thing that I would share from my experience is just to do you, just to do what feels right that year. If you're sad, just, it's fine. Just be sad. If, if you want to get into it. The, one of the best Christmases I have ever had in my entire life was that Christmas that was like three weeks after she died. Because it was one of the first times really? that I felt like it was okay to be happy. You know, it was like okay to come out. 
Um, everybody, and of course, everybody was super nice to me, you know, at the time. <laughs> Nobody's going to bicker over me with the last piece of pie. No, I can't. No. But, but, you know, everybody was just kind of in a mood of, like, let's not take this for granted. Let's not fight about stupid stuff. Let's just laugh mm-hmm. and have fun. And because everybody was so worried me about me for that Christmas, um, you know, friends, family, acquaintances. Oh, the holidays are going to be so hard for her. That first holiday was great. All the rest of them, a lot of times, have just been awful, just really hard. And that brings me to a point about people's misconceptions about grief. Mm. Um and people are there for you, you know, the first couple of months, but then years later, they kind of think, ah, she should be over it, or let's not bring this up, so she doesn't think about it. When, as you know, and anybody who's lost a child knows, you're always thinking about it, um, and it just becomes harder when dealing with other people, I think, in a lot of ways. What do you think it is that the holidays are special in that way, that people are extra sensitive? I think it's just because you have so many memory-making moments of that day where they're supposed to be there, they... Mm. Should be there, could be there. And you think of what I think I, for me, I think of what could be or what should be. You were talking about friends and family being nice to you. It's difficult to know how to help a friend that's lost a child. So what are some of the things that your friends and family did that were helpful and what wasn't so helpful? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of meat in that. Right. There is. And I've learned to kind of step back and be a little bit nicer to give them a little more leeway like knowing that it was really hard but knowing that I needed a lot more at times too um and I think the best thing that you can do is just kind of listen and acknowledge I mean because it's just this big elephant in the room a lot of times and just when you kind of Mm. stop and have a moment with me when you say you know I I know it must be hard today and you know the first year that I did that maybe the second year a little bit but after that um they were like kind of less of those just acknowledgements so when it's years down the line did you, and people are sort of holding back because they think that by now you must be over it right do you do you want them to acknowledge do you want them to come and say hey i know this is still a part of you i do absolutely and i know and especially in writing my booklet i was very cognizant of the fact that everyone's a little different and mm-hmm. you know that doesn't change just because you lost a child <laughs> we're not gonna all no. react the same but um, and a lot of times I don't need to talk about it for 10 minutes. I just want, you know, a, a second or just like to give me a little bit of breathing space or just to say, hey, I understand if you're like a little more flaky this week because it's a hard week for you. That's cool. Don't worry. I'm not going to get upset with you. You know, well, it's the holidays. You shouldn't get upset with anybody anyway, but I, <laughs> I certainly get it. You would hope. I know. But there's always the crazy uncle and all of that. But we're not going right. to go there. But I, right. I, I, I certainly understand that when, you know. Moments when the families and friends are more crowded together in a friendly family sort of way. Um, there's that there's that moment where somebody says, "Well, you know, I really wish you know she were here." And that's that's the moment when you sort of that's the test. If you get through that moment, you're good for the rest of the day. Yeah, I think so. And and I I'm just because the type of person I am. Like if that was in front of the whole family, then I would be kind of like. Oh, just let me grin and bear this. But I like it when people kind of pull me to the side, you know, just have a little oh. little moment with me one-on-one, on one, and then that helps me get through it. Would you recommend that to other people? To, to I mean, do you give that advice? You know, go take your friend aside and say something nice? That's part of it? Yeah, I definitely think so. And and along with, you know, it depends how your friend is. I mean, some people like to be, you know, are more outgoing than me and like to be part of the crowd. I'm an introvert. So you know <laughs> your friend. You know if they're an extrovert and I would never know that you were an introvert. I'm sorry. I just would right. never know that. <laughs> I can play an extrovert when I have to, but I'm very well, introverted. Well, you're doing a good job now. <laughs> so you. let me, in that in that same vein of being extroverted, what helps you find joy during the holiday season? How do you get to joy? 
personally for me, and not everybody is lucky to have this, I have a niece and a nephew. I have a few nieces and nephews, and that is my joy. That is my world, and I'm sure other people can relate to that if you have more children. I'm sure that Mm -hmm. gets them through. And all the first with them and the spoiling and spoiling of them all season long, it's just amazing. That's, That's my new joy. That's really nice. Is there something else? Do you have some private time? Do you just keep the the close family together? Do you go out? We do it different every year. And sometimes it's like how I feel like Thanksgiving's two days away, right? And my plans aren't even that solid. I like told my mom I'd be with her this year. So I might drive up there alone, like not even with my husband and cook a turkey. Since we're moving very, like we just try to be fly by the seat of our pants so we can see our kind of mood and if Christine needs to hide from the world and read some books and watch some bad TV instead, you know, on Christmas, then people will understand. And if they don't at this eight, at this rate, eight years later, I don't really care <laughs> if they don't understand. <laughs> well, you think by now your friends know who you are and know what you value and know how to read you. If this is not a year to have a party or this is a year, you would think that they would know that by now. I think you're lucky that you're surrounded apparently by friends and family who really want to try to understand yeah, and I was just going to say, I've, I've cut the list. It's pretty small, you know, now. So it's just like, you know, the few people, the friends and family who um, I trust to know me well enough that I kind of have really let in, you know, let in besides the acquaintance level and who I can play the extrovert with the acquaintances. But when I really need to crawl into my shell and be me, then it's just the the few amount of people who I who I trust that I keep around now. We have about a half a minute. So I, tell me something not helpful that somebody has said to you. I don't know where to start. Like, I think everybody has. <laughs> you get their about 20 list. seconds. <laughs> Sorry. Like, when are you going to have more kids? Oh, that's uh, great. She, uh, she's with God now. Okay, great. But I'm not Christian. And that's kind of spooky. I'm, yeah. the, the list is endless. <laughs> well, my two favorite ones are uh, So, do you have any more children? <sighs> yeah, because that really makes up for it. Right, and, that, makes, that and, matters. And my wife's former best friend is if I had a kid like yours, I'd kill myself. No, M G. Yeah. Right, oh. exactly. But guess what? With that, we're going to move to a hard break. So I'm going to say thank you so much for being with us and opening up and sharing your personal journey and how you're channeling your pain and helping others through your book, Cora's Law. But when we come back, we'll get some advice from Christine about specific ways to help friends who have lost a child and what results she has seen personally since Cora's Law was established. Night Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Heart to Heart with Michael is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, 
summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Did you know that most men suffer from beard itch, ingrown hairs, and a dry face all because they're not using the right shaving tools? At woodraiser.com, we sell handmade heirloom quality badger hairbrushes that exfoliate the skin, open the pores, and stimulate hair follicles, which gives a gentleman a closer, more comfortable shave and a clean face. Visit our website, woodraiser.com, where you can learn more about men's skin care and check out our professional shaving tools. A perfect gift for your man, built to last for generations. That's W-O-O-D-R-A-Z-O-R dot com. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Michael's program, please email him at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved. We're here with Christine McCormick, who is sharing experiences with us after having lost her daughter, Cora, to an undiagnosed heart defect. We're about to conclude today's show, and we're going to find out about what Cora's Law has really done in Indiana and some of the 52 ways that we can help friends who have lost a child. So we talked about Cora's Law a little bit in segment one. Can you tell us how Cora's Law has affected people in Indiana? I got an email from the senator, Senator Waltz, that I worked with, that 100 babies had been detected through the screening. And that was a few years ago. That was just within, like, the first few years. It just just blows my mind. And, like, again, that was just in Indiana within the first few years. Do you feel Um, like you're a mother to all those 100 babies that have been saved? I do a little bit. And I'm in contact with some of them on Facebook and watching them grow up and – and I've held one of them and met one of the families, oh. which was very emotional. And it was the first baby saved. And it was just a really emotional f- story because the baby lived in the middle of nowhere, the nearest hospital far away. And uh, it would have been a bad outcome had the baby not been um, sent, sent to a cardiologist so soon. I just think that's tremendous. Uh, imagine that times 50 for the rest of the country. Have you right. Have you got some basic stats on how many other states have adopted this law? We're at almost all the states either have a law or the, all their hospitals are screenings through some regulatory mechanism. I think there's just a few states that are kind of lagging behind, but most of their hospitals are screening. So, you know, there's some more issues to tackle, but we're getting there. That's, that's amazing, and it, and it gives a lot of hope, I think, because a lot of people don't think about congenital heart defects until they run into it. Right. But they think about all kinds of other things that could go wrong. It's just not on their radar. And this will put it there. And I think the more they're aware of it, the more they're going to demand screening if they don't have it. I just think, in general, raising awareness here is automatically going to save lives. And that's that's terrific. In your book, you mentioned 52 ways people can help friends who have lost a child. Let's talk about three things that you think are the most helpful <laughs> for friends. Only three, because you know we only get 30 minutes. So <laughs> friends, that the things that friends can do to help their bereaved friends, especially during the holidays, because we're on it right now. But not just the holidays. Any 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 three things that are really good, because I've run into this all the time. Right, and there are so many ways that you, you don't think of what you're like. What can we do? What I, I've had friends who lost a baby after me, and I've had moments of what do I do, because mm. it's just such a horrible situation. And uh, the 52 number was completely arbitrary. I remember sitting in front of my keyboard and just pounding it out, like there are things <laughs> you can do. And I think uh, the first one is not to run away because people mm-hmm. just tend to hide. I had a friend who didn't so, contact me for six months, and then when she did, or actually, I think we kind of ran into each other when we met back up. She said, I didn't know what to say. 
So you said nothing for six months, and not to call her out because we're not friends now, so she won't listen to this. So we're fine. But say something, do something, be there. Um, that's number one. Number two is, uh, and this goes with number one, is to, to spend more time listening. I had people like coming to me with problems uh, about my daughter's mm. death or how they were so sad. And, and you know, that you need to, to go that the other way. You know, only comfort the people most affected by a situation. You know, in this case, it would be like me and my husband. And then there's the next level. Like, people shouldn't have come to my mom who were from the outside of that. And, and to think about it as rings of people and to only give comfort in and to dump all the problems out. That's interesting because a lot of people come to me. Uh, we, we also were, were lucky enough that we were able to donate organs. And I spoke to, with, with one of the recipients. She was oh, wow. 66 years old or 67 years old when she got two lungs. And about a year later, she called me up. And I didn't know who she was. And then I realized who she was in the conversation that every word that she was saying originated in my daughter's lungs, which was a very powerful moment. Oh, and, wow. But she came to dump because she felt horrible that she was alive because of our tragedy, and she needed me to tell her it's okay. She said all the social workers said it was it was okay, and my rabbi said it was okay, and my family said it was okay, but I needed you to tell me it's okay. Your blessing, wow. And I mean that's I mean a powerful situation. One of the few where I can think of where she really needed you. But I mean some of the mundane things people would come to me about, I'd just be like, I don't have time for that. Nobody got time for that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's nice one of the few like kind of, you know, you can break every rule and there's exceptions to every rule. And that might, might be one of them. That's just a powerful moment. That's two things. Words. We need one more thing to make three. What can you do for a friend? Remember, um, you know, don't forget, even years later, it's been eight years for me. And I'll always remember. And if you'll always remember her, she'll never die. Um, for a lot of parents, they love love it when you say your child's, their child's name um, mm. and bring them into the present. That's true. And That's... and don't forget, don't forget ever. And I don't think anybody could ever forget Cora or or your your child either. But just remember them. Well, here's our our final and most difficult question: If you could go back in time and talk to yourself right after you lost Cora, what would you tell yourself? It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be so so hard in ways you never ever ever imagined. But you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it. And I know that's so simple, but I, I think there are days when I needed to know that I was going to come out the other side. So That's, that's I think, really important because at that moment, we spent most of this year talking about the moment of loss. And at that moment, you really have nowhere to go. I collapsed on the floor. I thought I was just going to, like, lose my mind and go into the psych ward. And I was done. Like, I can't describe it. It's like an undescribable moment. But my, my mind and brain were just drifting off. And I would have. I might have. Who knows? I might have ended up, in, like, locked up in a padded cell. And then I saw my husband. You know, this was at the hospital right in the middle of it. And was like, I got to be crap. I got to come back. I got to be there for him. And just a, kind of a powerful moment. And so I think I definitely needed to hear that over and over. You know, people you know need what? to hear. I'm, I'm going to steal another 10 seconds. Okay. Tell me about what it's like between you and your husband. I found that when I was up, my wife was down. And when she was down, I was up. And they were always at opposite poles. And that was excellent because one could always catch the other. Did you have that? Yeah, we've had a, got a lot of good moments and a lot of good moments of support. But one issue we've run into is, like, we grieve differently because people grieve differently. So sometimes mm -hmm. we don't under, always understand. So, But we work through that. And after eight years, we've gotten a lot better at it. Just time and talking. I think that's really important. This is the sort of thing that either keeps people together 
or tears them apart. Oh yeah, yeah. That's and we've like, been lucky yeah. to stay together. I think you've been lucky. I think you really have a good handle on this. And the fact that you're able to turn that into helping other people uh, is what makes you special. And I think that's probably one of the things that you do purposefully to remember Cora is to keep her with you as you help other people. Definitely. Like I said at the beginning, it's my way to continue to parent her, which is all I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Michael. Again, I want to thank Christine McCormick for sharing with us and hope her story has brought some hope and help to others who are listening. Please join me or the Heart to Heart with Michael team in Pal Talk every week following our program. I'll talk to you soon. Until then, remember, it is okay to breathe. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have gained strength from listening to our program. Heart to Heart with Michael can be heard every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next time when we'll share more stories. If you would like to continue today's discussion, please join us right after the program in the Hug Podcast chat room on Pal Talk. We hope you've enjoyed this first season of Heart to Heart with Michael. Please come back in January when we'll start season two and our theme will be a celebration of life where we'll be featuring some really wonderful guests with some tremendous stories about their loved ones.